Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I am excited soon to be going on a one-month historical true crime trip through my native state of Minnesota, but also Iowa, Wisconsin, Kansas, and Missouri. And I'm especially excited to visit some of the sites associated with the James Gang and the Dillinger Gang, but I'll see lots of other stuff, too, including the Velisca Axe Murder House, some of the events connected to that. It's going to be a trip filled mostly with true crime sites associated with the stories that I've covered in past episodes of Most Notorious. My trip will be documented extensively on Patreon as it is happening. So become a patron to see what I'm up to. That's patreon.com slash most notorious. I'll also put some video clips on TikTok as well. And when it's all over, I will try to create a highlight video to share on YouTube. Anyway, just wanted to give you a heads up if you are interested at all in following my little autumn trip. On to the show. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I'm very pleased to be speaking to Sarah Horowitz. She is a professor of history at Washington and Lee University in Virginia. She has a PhD in history from the University of California, and she has published both in scholarly journals and newspapers. She is here to talk about her book, of course. It is called The Red Widow the scandal that shook Paris, and the woman behind it all. Great to have you on. Thank you. So thrilled to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let me start by asking you this. Where did your inspiration for this book come from? Yeah, so about 10 years ago, I was on a tour of a Parisian cemetery uh, with some friends, and our tour guide took us back by the tomb of Félix Faure. He was president of France in the 1890s. And our tour guide couldn't help but mention what's probably the most famous thing about Faure these days is that he died during an assignation with his mistress. (laughs) 
And then our tour guide also said that a batch of years later, the mistress's husband and mother were murdered. And our guide strongly implied that she might have had something to do with it. And I, I did not believe this at the time. I thought this was too fantastical to be true. I thought this was an urban legend that, you know, uh, sort of French people like to tell about their politicians and their politicians' mistresses. But I was interested enough to start reading. And so there's a small handful of books about this woman who's known as Marguerite Stenel, um, or to her friends and everyone who knew her, Meg. And I just found her story fascinating. And I also realized that the tour guide had been telling the truth, but he really um, missed so much that was interesting about her life and also the criminal case that she was involved in, the, the murders of her husband and mother. And then I went into the police archives in um, Paris and there's a pretty big investigative file um, relating to the murders of her husband and mother. And I was just hooked. There was so much wild stuff in there about her, about her husband, about the investigation itself. And I really knew I had to tell her story. Um, and I, I wanted to tell it not as something written for other scholars, but something for the public because it's such a fun story. There are wild costumes and improbable lies and a sort of captivating heroine who's also an unreliable narrator and sudden reveals. Um, and it was just, it was really fun to work on. And so that's how I came to this story um, with a sort of sense of curiosity and also just, um, you know, enjoyment of the twists and tales of her life. Yeah, for sure. This period of, of French history is so fascinating, and I'm probably going to massacre uh, some French names here, but uh, <laughs> this is, a, I mean, this is the time of, you know, the Moulin Rouge, uh, the Can-Can, mm -hmm. Toulouse-Lautrec, Georges Seurat, uh, the artist, mm -hmm. uh, the, the post-impressionism movement. It, mm -hmm. It's a wild, vibrant time to be in France. It is. And she lives in Paris in the 1890s and then 1900s. And this is, I think we often think of it as the most exciting period in Paris's history. As you say, it's when all these artists are hanging around. She herself um, was very involved in the artistic scene in Paris, although um, a much more kind of conventional artistic scene than the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists. And it's also, you know, this is around when the Eiffel Tower goes up, when Paris really becomes a sort of pleasure capital of the world. And that's something she participates in quite actively. Um, at the same time, it's also a society riven by deep contradictions. So France is a democracy where all men have the vote, where you have a government that's very, very devoted to the principles of liberty and equality, at least in theory. But in practice, so much political power, economic power is in the hands of a very small elite and the, a very interconnected elite. Um, Meg is a central node in connecting this elite. This is the world she lives in. And so they, they really have to justify their monopoly on power, or not monopoly, but sort of near monopoly on power, 
Um, and one way they do it is through attitudes about sexuality. So they, they really hold themselves up as moral exemplars. Um, this is why they deserve to have all this power. But at the same time, they give themselves a, so much license to misbehave in private. Um, and so Meg is so part of this world um, that has enormous power and prestige that's very open to extramarital affairs at this point. And also that's always trying to hide their behavior um, when it goes outside of the bounds of morality. So I think of Paris as probably would have been a really fun place in so many ways, also probably very stinky. Um, but <laughs> this, this sort of, um, you know, at the same time, a city of deep gaps between rich and poor and lots of political tensions that go along with um, those gaps. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. So, yes, let's start with Meg. And I think talking about her childhood is especially important because it really does affect her in adulthood. Yeah, so she's born in 1869 in a small town in eastern France called Beaucourt. It's an industrial town which is dominated by this particular firm called Japi Brothers. And they're... metal workers. And her father is part of this family. But her father's kind of a black sheep of the family. And so he, when he's 28, he does something that the family can never really forgive, which is he marries the daughter of an innkeeper, Emily. And so this was seen as really scandalous because of the class difference between the two of them. And so as a result of this, the her Meg's household is always held apart from the rest of the family. What would is very troubling for us and is much more scandalous for us is that there's also a considerable age difference between Meg's father, Edward, and her mother, Emily. So her father is uh, 28 when they get married and her mother is 16. And so this, um, I think... Meg really sees her parents as deeply in love, their marriage as perfect. She sees herself as the apple of her father's eye. She, you know, admires him so greatly. And, but I think there's actually something much more troubling going on in the household. So we know that her father, Edward, is physically abusive to her mother. It's also, there are also rumors that Edward was sexually abusing his daughter, Meg. I don't know if those are true, of course not, um, but it is clear even from her own memoirs and from her own accounts that her father had some sort of sexual interest in her and was really wanted her to be alluring to men, but was also very jealous of any male attention. And so I think she's shaped so much by um, a father who teaches her the idea that sort of drawing men's sexual attention gets her love and power and attention and all these things she wants quite desperately. And her mother, she clearly loves her mother, but has a somewhat more distant relationship with her mother. And one issue between them is that Meg really sees her mother as very passive. 
I think we could say that it's quite possible that Edward never gave his wife the opportunity to be anything else uh, because of his mistreatment of her. But one thing that Meg learns from this is not to be passive. And she really, her whole life, seems to define herself against her mother as someone who is going to bend fate towards her will, who's never going to settle for less, who's always hustling. And she does, I think, take some good things from her father. Like him, she's very charming. She's very gregarious. She loves people, uh, but she's very musical um, and very musically talented. And so she, but she really sort of tries always to be the woman that her father wanted her to be and also is constantly in search of older men to take care of her, which I think is also sort of this kind of relationship with her father um, because she sees his sexual attentions as a form of love and care. And things get really complicated when she is in her late teens and she falls in love with a young army officer. And he seems to be a really good match with her. He's also charming. He's really in love with her. And initially, her father's like, yeah, fine. Okay. I think, you know, maybe the two of you could get married. And he sort of hems and haws. But Meg, no, she can't hear the no there. Um, and so she and her, um, the young army officer, they get engaged in secret. This was something that would also be considered scandalous at the time because marriages among the bourgeoisie in France were really something that the family was supposed to have intense involvement in. And in addition, there's some evidence that the two of them have premarital sex, which was absolutely taboo. Her father finds this out um, and he flies into a rage and he exiles her. He sends her to live with his sister across the country. And then while she's there living with her sister, he drops dead, uh, probably in part because of the sort of stress of what he considers his favorite daughter's betrayal. But this leaves her in this position where her favorite parent, her protector has died and her mother is not really able to manage the family finances, not really able also to do what was essentially a mother's duty, which is to find her an appropriate spouse. And so Meg has just lost her favorite parent and is really in this caretaker position where she's taking care of her mother, who is again, sort of very passive and, and sort of unable to manage life. And so, you know, by this time, Meg is, the family's like, yeah, she needs to get married, right? We don't want her to end up being a spinster. That was not the fate that, you know, was desired for um, young women of the, the French bourgeoisie. sea. But she's also been touched by scandal because so many people in her town know about the relationship she had with the army officer. And so she doesn't have great marital prospects, but her sister comes up with this artist, Adolf Stenow, who is much older. He's 19 years older than she is. 
he lives in Paris, um, and he's not a really great artist. Um, <laughs> you know, I've seen some of his works, and they're not fantastic. <laughs> but she, Meg is under a lot of pressure to marry him, to sort of solve this family problem of this kind of unmarried, scandalous young woman. And finally, she see, um, she cedes to it. She marries him, and she goes to live with him in Paris um, and his home there. And she quickly finds out that he's very passive. He's very weak. He's very resigned to being a mediocre artist and living a middle-class existence. And I think there's this, you know, she wanted to marry someone who would be like her father, right? I think there's, she's very clear that in marrying an older man, she thought she was marrying someone who would replace her father, but she actually ends up marrying her mother. Right, someone who's very passive, who's very weak, very resigned. And so she's the one who really has to be the adult in the relationship. And it's this dynamic that's sort of constantly playing out in terms of her going back and forth between her two parents and also this constant search for an older male protector. And part of the draw in marrying him was the opportunity to move to Paris and it's supposed to be this exciting place. And then she finds out she's living in this industrial area of the city. She's disappointed. And I believe that you write that it's only like a week into their marriage that she wants out. Yes, yes. So they're on, I think they're on their honeymoon. And she's just like, I don't want to be married to this man. I don't know why. Um, you know, there's lots of mysteries about her life. This is one of them. Um, and I, so I don't know what it is. She goes back to live with her mother and is like, you know, please don't make me marry, stay married to this guy. The problem that she faced at the time was that divorce is legal, but it was seen as really scandalous at the time. And so her mother really pressures her away from divorcing him and basically says like, I think you got to make the best of a bad situation. That's maybe something we can understand given that you know, her mother had been in a really bad marriage um, and she had stayed married to her husband. And so she, her mother is pressuring her to remain married. She eventually goes back to live with her husband in Paris and she finds out a very depressing life in Paris. As you say, she had dreamed of this kind of romantic existence, you know, going to all these concerts and going to these fancy balls and strolling the grand boulevards of Paris. And she's in this industrial neighborhood. The house that she lives in, her husband's house, is quite large, but one newspaper described it as having the appearance of a the annex of a train station, right? So really kind of drab. She is living also with her sister-in-law, so her husband's sister, who deeply disapproves of her um, and won't let Meg change anything about the house. So I think literally for some of the first few weeks in her marriage, she's just sitting there in the dark because she's not allowed to turn the lights on. Oh. Um, and so fortunately she arranges a marriage for her sister-in-law and, you know, the sister-in-law moves out of the house. But, you know, I think she's also faces very limited social horizons that, you know, her husband kind of was quite content with a middle-class existence where he hung out with some of his artist colleagues and his family. And Meg just wants more. 
um, and she's always seeking more. And so that sets her off on a really kind of wild ride. So how did they compromise? How did they learn to live with each other? They are obviously not compatible. So how did they coexist? They are not compatible at all. And throughout their marriage, they keep going back and forth to whether they should divorce, um, but decide not to because divorce is so scandalous. So they, after the birth of their one and only child, they struck a, strike a deal that is basically he's going to get what he most wants, which is that they will stay married and they live in the same home. But she gets a lot of independence and autonomy. And more or less the deal that they strike is she gets to have affairs and he can't do anything about it. It should be said, he is also having lots of affairs with both men and women. And she's really, Meg is really horrified by his affairs, particularly his affairs with men, where there was enormous stigma um, at the time about men having sex with other men. But they decide basically to kind of live independently and not really meddle in each other's love lives, um, but present the facade of a happy married couple. And so her first affair is actually with her husband's best friend, a man named Camille Boucher. He was a very important magistrate in Paris, basically an attorney general. And he's older than her. He's quite wealthy. He's very charming. He's very witty. All the ladies like him. Um, and so she really sees him as a, like, you know, as the sort of male protector that she wants. And it's pretty clear that he gives her money and also introduces her to a high society world to which he belongs. Um, so other magistrates, industrialists, financiers, politicians, important officials. And I don't know when their relationship ends, but she at some point in the 1890s, launches on a series of affairs with other magistrates in particular, other judges, and sort of other people in high society. And what she does is she goes to them and says, more or less, if you buy one of my husband's paintings, I'll have an affair with you. <laughs> and Right. So it's a form of sex work, but it's a form of sex work which kind of maintains this facade of respectability because she's just marketing her husband's art and these people are buying her husband's paintings. And so then maybe her husband will become known as this society painter. And maybe, you know, on the side, then she decides to have affairs with them. And so this is her system of making money, of building high society connections and of really making a place for herself um, in this kind of very glamorous, glittering world of Parisian high society. We will be back in a moment. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's four years of fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, 
written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst. It's the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. So she gets to the point within the next few years where she is seeing the president of France. How does that happen? Is that well documented? Yeah. So um, they start having an affair in 1897 and they meet while they're both in the Alps over the summer. Um, He's sort of, I don't know, like on his official presidential duties and she's like basically had followed one of her lovers um, who's vacationing in the Alps um, and her husband's there painting, right? So it's this incredibly awkward situation. (laughs) Um, And he sees her and is absolutely smitten. And there's a lot of independent verification of this. Um, He's traveling with a military aide who's so frustrated, who keeps a diary. And in his diary is so frustrated that the president, Felix Faure, keeps rearranging the plans for his presidential visit to make occasions to see her. Wow. Um, right. So, you know, he's, you know, Faure was a, a ladies' man. So he had lots of mistresses. His wife more or less tolerates them. And then sometime later at the end of the summer, they both go back to Paris and Faure commissions a portrait um, from her husband, which means that he has to go sit in her husband's studio um, to sit for the portrait. And also 
buys this painting with him in it and soldiers for an astronomical sum. And it's not that actually, it's not that Faure actually buys the painting, it's that he has the French government buy the painting for 30,000 francs, which is just a huge amount of money for, right, like what's actually not great art. Um, but <laughs> this is his way of, you know, basically he knows the, the rules of the game and he knows that to have an affair with this woman he's absolutely smitten with, he's going to have to um, buy some of her husband's art. And he's, he's really just head over heels with her. His friends actually think he's being completely ridiculous and are a little annoyed with him or sort of think that he's, he's just going a little over the top in how, how deeply he is in love with Meg. He gives her really expensive jewelry. Um, and he also gives her more or less a kind of a lot of favors. So she becomes someone who helps friends and family members who work for the government out, um, speeds their promotions along, gets good transfers for them. Her husband gets this very prestigious award during the course of her relationship with Foch, and that's not a coincidence. And it also becomes clear that, you know, if you want a promotion, if you want something from the government, you approach her and you go through her and you go to her house and call on her um, and she might help you out. So she becomes really a political broker during her relationship with Faure. And she also starts to have a lot of men who are in the civil service and quite powerful who are in her debt. So this is this kind of system of she's getting paid for sex and she also gets all this influence, all this prestige. And things are going great for her. Like, you know, finally her household is actually flush with cash. I think um, it's not something I put in the book, but I think they like redo the roof of their house, um, <laughs> right? And sort of remodel it because they have so much money for a change. And, but in February of 1899, Faure and Meg are having one of their daily sexual encounters in the Elysee Palace, which is the French equivalent of the White House. And he has a stroke. And Meg is sort of flees the room. She's rushed back to her home on the other side of Paris. And Faure dies a few hours later. And her system is really in peril because her greatest patron has just died and died in this incredibly embarrassing fashion for her. And there are all these newspapers, they're threatening to reveal her name. He dies in the midst of this massive political crisis that France was undergoing at the time. And his death really shifts essentially the course of French history. And she also has to deal with the fact that she's so infamous now. And so that's, this, that's their relationship. I think he was very smitten with her. I don't think she was really invested in him emotionally, um, but I do think she loves all the things that he gets her. Interesting, yeah. So that happens in 1899, and it's not until May of 1908 
that her notoriety begins to hit its peak. (laughs) Let's talk about the day, the last full day of her husband and mother's lives. She has a pretty pleasant time with them, right? Her, Her mother has come to Paris to visit. She spends the day with both her mom and her husband. Can you walk us through what happened? Yeah, so by May of 1908, um, the marriage between Meg and Adolf is really, really in shambles. Um, Meg desperately wants a divorce. Adolf is very unwilling to divorce her. Um, He's still in love with her, which is quite tragic. She's not at all in love with him. I don't know that she ever loved him. And she's trying to find an exit for their marriage. And it's clear that she's trying to find a lover who will agree to marry her if she gets a divorce from Adolf, but is having some trouble doing that. So that's in the kind of background. And in May of 1908, at the end of May, her mother comes from Beaucourt to visit. It's, it's, I think, a very normal visit. You know, this wasn't exceptional. Her mother often came um, to visit Meg. And then there's another sister who also lives um, in Paris and they do some shopping and they run some errands and they're trying to help out the career of her brother, who's an absolute disaster. Then they had planned to go to the Stenel's, uh house right outside Paris, which is like a kind of country home. And that's where their daughter is staying. But Meg's mother, Emily, has arthritis and there's a storm and her arthritis is really acting up and she just can't manage the trip, which is about 45 minutes to the country home. So they decide they're going to stay at their house in Paris for the night. And they have, as you said, this really lovely night. Um, she and her husband are for once getting along. You know, they they apparently dance, um, you know, which is something that this is this is this couple that's been at odds for over a decade and they have a nice dinner and Meg, she fixes some toddies to help her husband and mother sleep. She wraps her mother's legs, aching legs, right? Because of the rheumatism in this cotton sort of wool, basically, or cotton wadding. And then they all go to sleep. And it should be said that, um, So Adolf was sleeping in his bed, but Meg and Adolf don't sleep in the same bed. And Emily, the mother, is sleeping in Meg's bed because she thought it would be more comfortable. And Meg is sleeping in the daughter's bed. And so they're all sleeping in these three separate rooms. And we don't know what happens until the next morning when at about 5.30, the valet of the household wakes up he goes down to the floor where the the bedrooms are and he hears this moaning and he enters and he sees meg tied to the bed with a gag by her side and she's crying out to be untied he also sees her husband and mother dead of apparent strangulation. And so he cries out for help. The police come running um, and it starts this investigation. And so Meg, she she's the only survivor of the attack. 
but she's also the only witness. And so the police ask her what she had seen. And she says there were four intruders who came in around midnight and they were three tall robed men and a redheaded woman. And they wanted to rob the place. They must have thought that the family wouldn't be there and that the house was empty. But when they saw that actually the family was still there, they killed the husband and mother, but then spared her because they thought that she was Meg's adolescent daughter. <laughs> right. And so there's some problems with this. I mean, the robes do not make sense um, that these men would be robes. And they're, they're kind of, she says like, they're like robes that Russian priests would wear, which you know, it's not the most convenient garb for um, robbing a house. It's also, they, apparently they're also, at some point, they're wearing hats that look sort of like sombreros. Um, that doesn't make any sense. And the other problem is that just the crime scene, the clues from the crime scene do not match her account at all. Right. And so there, you know, nothing had really been taken from the house. Um, the house was in quite good order. There's no signs of forced entry. The f door was unlocked. There's also no signs of struggle on really any of the bodies. Very, very faint ones on her husband's upper arms, sort of faint bruises. But that's it. And so how could this have happened according to the story she says? I think it's also quite improbable that she would have actually been mistaken for her adolescent daughter. Right. She, she's almost 40 years old, right? She is. Um, and, you know, people said, oh, she always looked young, you know, and of course it was dark at night. But this just seems like very, very improbable to me. Yeah. And on hand... Uh, luckily, one of the most famous criminologists in French history is there on the scene to investigate, take photographs. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so um, this is um, Bertillon, who he's actually the guy who comes up with a mugshot, as well as a sort of elaborate system of criminal identification that we don't use anymore. And so he's this sort of very famous criminalist, um, and he's there and he's taking crime scene photographs, which you can find on the internet. And also there, some of them are reproduced in my book. Um, and they're really haunting images. Um, the one of her mother is taken actually from above. So he had this very elaborate contraption where you could sort of see victims' bodies um, from above. So it looks like you're on the ceiling looking down. And so it's this absolutely haunting image of Emily whose eyes are still open and there's a gag in her mouth. And then there's also photos, of course, of Adolf with a rope around his neck and he's sort of collapsed on the floor with his knees tucked under him between his bedroom and then the bathroom. And there are these incredibly haunting images and he, he was there to um, not just to record the crime scene, but also in a way to uh, create images that were meant to sway a jury, jury away from leniency. 
At this point, juries are increasingly unwilling to convict people um, on trial for murder. And so the police are really anxious about this. And so one of the strategies they come up with is these really kind of like haunting and deeply disturbing crime scene photographs. But that also gives us all these, these records of what the house looked like. So, you know, you can see that there's a lot of drawers that are, you know, just sort of not, nothing's pulled out of them, that there's some rooms which are essentially untouched, that, you know, the house is, is more or less in pretty good order. The one room that looks a little bit ransacked is Meg has a small study. And a lot of her stuff has been thrown on the floor and the drawers to her study are, have been pulled out and th thrown on the floor. But even still, you know, there's a lot of kind of cabinets where nothing has been touched. And so he's there. There's a lot of detectives. He, Bertillon is also taking fingerprints. And there are two really important officials so one is Octave Amar, who is, he's the chief of the Parisian detective brigade. And he's, um, you know, he's a bit of a dashing figure. And he often kind of comes to investigate high profile criminal cases. And then French, France has a somewhat unfamiliar system to us where the chief investigator of a lot of prominent crimes is actually not a member of the police, but a member of the judiciary. And in this case, that's Joseph Lede. Um, so he's a judge. And the idea is that you would have this judge who ferrets out uh, the truth, right? Through this very extensive pretrial investigation. There are very few limits on what he can do. Um, and he, the judge has a lot of autonomy. But it's, it's a different system where there's this, what's called examining magistrate, um, who actually directs the investigation and more or less tells the police what to do. And Joseph Lede may possibly have been one of Meg's lovers. At the very least, we know he's one of her admirers. And we do have some evidence that he had specifically asked to be the examining magistrate of the case to help her out because of his feelings for her. So immediately we have this situation where there's this very well-connected woman who seems to be able to call on a lot of her connections to shield her from certain types of scrutiny. Right. So the police are in kind of a bind on one hand, as you've said, she's being covered for in the police department. Uh, but on the other hand, her account of what happened is pretty obviously fiction. There was a storm that night, um, for example, but, but no muddy tracks into the house. No sign of, of forced entry. The whole thing just stunk. It doesn't make any sense. And this is also a case that is front page news of um, the Parisian newspapers, because this is someone they've heard about. You know, there's been all this gossip for years about Meg, her relationship with Faure, and so, and also, you know, then as now, crime sells really well, and so journalists love a kind of crime story. And so the case is front page news, 
a lot of the details, right, the kind of lack of forced entry, the fact that there's not that much that's been stolen, the lack of signs of struggle, and also Meg's quite improbable tale of what she saw, those are also in the news. And so you have this public case that everyone is talking about and everyone wants solved, but you know, it's not clear that the police are at all willing to solve it. And so Amart and Lady, they have to come up with something to say. And so what they say is, they say, look, everyone thinks that Meg did it. That's not true. It's actually just common criminals. This unfortunately happens all the time. And she's totally innocent. And one thing that I think they they don't necessarily say, but they can rely on, is if her story of what she saw doesn't make any sense. Well, you know, we all know that women are prone to mental illness and to lying. And so that's just, you know, she was dealing with a lot of strain. Uh, she had this very traumatic event just happen to her. So of course she's not telling the truth. And so I think they're also kind of playing on certain ideas about, you know, what women were like at the time, but no one believes them, right? And so there are sort of newspapers which are really willing to say, this does not make any sense. Why aren't the police saying anything? We also know that um, they're, you know, members of the Parisian public who are like, decide to investigate this crime on their own. I think in, you know, the, this is something we see again today, these sort of, this interest in true crime, um, of course, and also people like doing kind of citizen investigations. And so there are all sorts of people who are like writing in tips to the police, or um, they are, you know, following things that they think are a little bit strange, or hanging out around the house in case there are any clues, because they really want to solve this. They want to know what happened. And there's really this sort of sense that the police are lying to them. The authorities are lying to them. They're not going to get the truth. Right, right. I mean, it's interesting, too, that, that she would have had ample opportunities to kill her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, in fact, she did commit the murders, she did it on the day that her mother was there. She, she killed her mother, which is pretty unsettling, Right. Yeah, so there, um, there are a lot of theories of the crime, but there are essentially two theories. Um, one of them is that she did it, that she wanted to be rid of her husband to get a new, a new husband, someone she liked more, who was, was richer, that he wouldn't divorce her, um, or the divorce was too scandalous, so she's like, we're just going to kill him. And so I think there one problem that, as you say, of this theory is that her mother's there. And why would she have killed her mother? Or even there's some theories that her mother's death was accidental. And why would she have had her mother witness that? Um, She's very protective of her mother. She really thinks that sort of she needs to shield her mother. So this is something that's not in the book because it seemed like a a, like background, but um, her mother overspends wildly. And Meg's older sister is so furious about this and is just enraged with her mother. And there's a big family fight right before the murders. And Meg is the one to really try and make peace and defend her mother. 
So I think she's very protective of her mother. I think she really wants to make her mother's life easy. I think she also loves her mother. And so it also, like, the idea that she would kill her mother and her husband, it seems like there would have been ways, if you really wanted to kill your husband, there would have been ways to just kind of get rid of him that were easier than this. You know, yeah. like, he's he's not in great health. I think he might have a sort of alcohol and drug dependencies towards the end of his life. I think, you know, just like shove him down the stairs. Sorry, this is very ghoulish, but like that would, and and say he had a fall, but this is so public. And it also strikes me that if she did kill her husband in a premeditated murder, she probably would have come up with a better story than she does. And so these are all these reasons why I don't really think that she did it. And there are, you know, that being said, there are kind of other people who've written on this case who think she did. Um, But sometimes they're like, well, she was a bad woman. So of course she did it because we all know that like women can be terrible. And so there just, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of compelling evidence that she actually committed the murders. We will be back momentarily. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned once more. So who are some of the other suspects? Mm-hmm. So the most likely scenario and what most people at the time think is that she has one of her rich and prominent lovers come over for an assignation and she and the lover get in a fight. And somehow that fight ends with her husband and mother being Uh, murdered. And there's this, so this is a theory that's running around at the time. It strikes me as quite probable, given the fact that the door was unlocked, and there are no signs of forced entry that sort of suggests that maybe she let someone in on her own. It also, you know, she's so happy the night before, and that maybe it's because she's like, oh, like, I'm going to get some money and our financial difficulties are going to ease up. So that seems quite probable to me. And there are people who have tried to identify who this might be. And in particular, there's this really prominent criminalist named Edmund Locard, who's He's like the most prominent criminalist of, in France in the 20th century. And he comes up with the idea of trace evidence. Um, so that's what he's famous for. Um, and he he doesn't investigate the crime, but he works with a lot of people who did. And he works quite high up in the Parisian police. 
you know, like a decade or so later. So, you know, it's very possible that someone kind of pulled him aside and said, like, here's what really happened. And throughout his life, he writes about this case, he gives interviews, and he suggests that the lover was a very wealthy, prominent foreigner. And at one point, he suggests that the lover in particular was a very wealthy and prominent Russian. And he he tells this to a journalist, and he is really, really emphasizes that this guy is super, super prominent and more than an aristocrat. And so from this, a lot of folks think that this might have been a member of the Russian royal family. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Um, They often came to Paris to kind of enjoy, you know, a city that's very devoted to pleasure. And Meg was one of those pleasures So we do know that she had some liaisons with members of various royal families, including the Russian royal family. He's a grand duke, so he's the Tsar Nicholas II's uncle, who's in Paris at the time, and is known for a very hot temper and a love of pretty women. And, you know, right after the murders, leaves Paris. And so there's some speculation that he might have been the murderer. Um, But, you know, Russia and France were in this diplomatic alliance, which is really, it's a really important diplomatic alliance. And so France does not want to anger the Russian royal family by arresting the Tsar's uncle um, for murder. And he also probably has diplomatic immunity. So he can't even be arrested. This is the sort of chain of evidence that leads us to suggest that he might have done it. There are other people who say, like, yes, we know that the the murderer had diplomatic immunity. Um, One of the doctors who's at the autopsy of um, Adolf and Emily says, like, that he was told that the murderer had diplomatic immunity. And then one of Meg's lovers, like, more or less also kind of confirms that it was someone with diplomatic immunity. There's some people who think it was a member of the British royal family. I'm not quite sure. I'm not ready to sort of bet large sums um, as to who in particular it was. But I think it's quite probable that it was a member of the Russian royal family and this Grand Duke in particular. Interesting. So. She's not quiet, right? She's very vocal about what she believed happened, but she goes through a period where she accuses multiple people of the murders. And she, so Meg lies all her life. She has a very, very loose relationship with the truth, but she also always tells shifting lies, which undermine her credibility. So First, she says that she recognized one of the intruders as one of her husband's models, which is a really nice way of blaming her husband, especially since there were rumors that her husband was having sexual relations with his male models. So this is a way of saying, like, it's all my husband's fault that he ended up murdered. And then she says, no, no, I didn't actually recognize anyone. It was just these common criminals. One problem she runs into is that she had actually 
given the press some of the words that the perpetrators supposedly speak to her. And the, the press is like, this isn't current slang. It's like the slang of the 1830s. Um, so, you know, it'd be the equivalent if a witness today was saying, like, someone tried to give me a knuckle sandwich. Like, it's just not what people use. So then she knows this and she, she knows that, like, oh, actually, people don't believe the story. So she then says it's these mysteriously rich people who are dressed up as poor people. And she also blames Germans she blames unknown family members. She says to the police it was Brazilians or North Africans. And she she just sort of keeps inventing stranger and stranger versions. Um, at one point, she says that the perpetrators were wearing gloves that flared out like the at the elbows. So like um, if folks have seen the three musketeers. Yeah. Um, those are the gloves that p- the musketeers wore, but of course people weren't wearing them <laughs> in 1908. So that is going on. And so all these different versions really undermine her credibility. But again, the police can say like, look, we all know that maybe she's mentally ill and unhinged after the murders. Um, So that's why she's telling all these different lies. And, you know, that doesn't mean she did it. One of the problems she really faces is that she needs to clear her name. It's not enough for her that the police are just saying, like, to the public, she didn't do it. She, there's so much suspicion. So many people think that she did it. um, That her lovers, a lot of her friends are saying, we're not going to associate with you if you don't clear your name. And this is a problem for her because she's financially dependent on her lovers. And it's also her daughter had been engaged um, to a man she loved deeply. And the family is like, no, you can't get married anymore because the the Stanels are too scandalous. So she, she becomes socially radioactive. And so she's really, really desperate to clear her name. And you have these journalists who really, really would like to know what happened and are kind of really interested in what the story is. And in particular, there's one journalist, um, Marcel Houtin, who courts her over the course of many months and basically I think first comes to her and says, look, if you'll write your memoirs about what happened with Felix Faure, we'll give you a lot of money. And she's not really willing to do that, but she does say that the police are on the verge of arresting perpetrators. And so the reporter thinks this is great, right? This is going to be really good copy. And he basically has Meg write him a letter that he then publishes saying the police are going to arrest these perpetrators at any minute and they're foreign. And so the public goes wild with this because they hadn't heard about the case for a few months. They're really still quite curious about it. And so she starts giving interviews in these interviews she starts blaming Jews um, and says, 
you know, these kind of notions, he really calls on these notions that Jews were criminal and dangerous to the nation. It's very anti-Semitic ideas that were running around France at the time. And the problem again that she faces is that the police do not arrest any perpetrators. And so she's back in the spotlight and she looks so much more unreliable than she had before. And and we don't have time to go into it now, but there are all these twists and turns about her kind of finding people she thinks might have done it and sort of wild goose chases around Paris. But she she's facing this problem that, you know, she's in the spotlight. People think she's really unreliable. She's desperate to clear her name. And so she starts planting evidence on her valet. And she has a reporter uncover that evidence. And so the valet is thrown into prison. He becomes the chief suspect. But then within a few days, her deception is revealed. And it's clear that she planted evidence. So now she's really in the spotlight. This is monopolizing the front pages of every newspaper. No one else can talk about anything other than this case. And she looks like a liar who's really dangerous. And so then she tells some reporters that it was her cook's son. And that she's known it all along. She's known that he was the perpetrator. But she didn't want him arrested because she really was quite fond of her cook. And the story... It's absurd, right? You don't want your the murderer of your husband and mother arrested because you want to spare your cook's feelings. And as it turns out, the cook's son has a really rock-solid alibi. And so finally, Joseph Leday, this chief investigator who has humored her for months and tried to protect her, he really has no choice but to throw her into prison for the murders because this case is such a scandal. People are so enraged about her lies, about the fact that the state allowed her to get away with them for so long. And he just knows he has to do something. So he arrests her, he throws her into the Parisian women's prison. And then immediately after he resigns from the case, basically saying, I shouldn't have taken it because I was close to Meg. And this is this moment where, you know, the, again, I was reading these newspapers and it's just, there's nothing else on the front page of these newspapers. And the headlines are like two inches big, right? Just screaming about this case and no one can do anything other than talk about this case. So, you know, the, the government says like, well, what are we going to do? You know, this case is so public. We're getting such backlash for mishandling it and for protecting her that they're also in the hot seat. So his successor, uh, he believes she's guilty. Mm -hmm. And then the pendulum swings in the opposite direction quickly. He starts releasing information about her, her past liaisons to the press, and her infidelities start becoming fodder for newspapers. Yeah. So um, again, you know, this case, this case is just monopolizing the headlines, including for weeks after her arrest, where all 
that they're talking about is her past, her relationship with Faure, her other lovers. And some of this information is coming from the new examining magistrate, a man named Entre, and some of it's coming from neighbors and relatives and even journalists who had known all these secrets and they're just spilling all the details. And it's actually, some of it is, is quite shocking to us. I was reading what are actually quite graphic descriptions of her last encounter with Fa. And it's, you know, it's very shocking that this would be sort of essentially again, front page news in these major Parisian newspapers that are really talking about the president's anatomy and exactly what the two of them were doing. And so it's also, right, you know, Andre, this examining magistrate, he's he's quite cruel to her. He blows, he's chain smokes throughout his interrogations. And he blows smoke into her eyes. He tries to trap her. He'll sort of ask her the same question many, many times, hoping for a her to be inconsistent in an answer. And he even does, he once sort of points to her hands and says, your hands are so small and delicate. Even they lie because they're the hands of a murderer, but they're lying that you committed murder because of their smallness. Uh, Right. And this is, I mean, this is just like, (laughs) At this point, it's really hard to take him seriously, even though we can also feel, you know, some degree of sympathy for her as she's enduring sort of, you know, what I think are months and months of interrogations at the hands of this very hostile judge. So the trial moves forward. Can you give us some of the highlights, the strategies used by both the prosecution and the defense. And, and tell us how she handled herself on the stand. So she's put on trial in November 1909, which is a year essentially after she was arrested. And she's put on trial for double murder. And had she been convicted, the sentence could have been death. So this, uh, de- by the guillotine, sorry, I forgot that important part. Um, so, you know, it really is um, a case where the stakes are quite high for her. And people are very curious about the trial. At the time, trials were seen as entertainment, as, you know, you would kind of go to a trial instead of going to the theater. And so people are really, really curious. And one thing that's different about these trials is that the interrogation is actually led by the judge. It's not the same judge as Andre, the examining magistrate, a different judge. Um, in this case, his name is Valls. And he leads the interrogation as opposed to right um, her being questioned by the defense and prosecution. And he interrogates her for three days. He's very smart. He's very conscientious. He's known as one of the best judges in France. And she just demolishes him. And she interrupts him. She accuses him of being cruel. She makes fun of him. She's witty. She's at her absolute best. And she captivates the jury. And everyone loves her. And everyone thinks this judge is just been overpowered 
by this woman who had been in prison for a year and he cannot handle her. Um, she's very, she's an like, agent of chaos. So she just causes havoc wherever she goes and she takes over the trial you know, whenever the the prosecution leaps in with trying to accuse her of something, she won't let the prosecutor get away with anything. And so the trial just really becomes a sort of spectacle about her. And people really love her. People are really captivated with her. The reporters are, the members of the jury are, um, the spectators are. There are huge lines outside of the courtroom to get into the trial. And they all think like, isn't this amazing that she's just demolishing the prosecution? It's There are other things that hamper the prosecution. They have a lot of evidence that she hated her husband and they have a lot of evidence that she lied about the murders and what she saw, but they don't have any direct evidence that she committed the murders. And the prosecutor is, he's not very talented. Um, he really bungles the investigation. Um, he floats sort of absurd theories, which angers people and you know, it becomes just the sort of spectacle of her where the prosecutor is trying to say she's greedy, she hated her husband, she's a lying, evil woman. And her defense is trying to say she just loved too much. And if she lied after the murders, it's because she's trying to protect her daughter or because she was overwhelmed with the deaths of her husband and mother. And her whole life was one of love. There's no way she would have ever committed these murders. And the defense attorney, Aubin, is really good. And he really plays this up. And he finds the young army officer that she had had a romance with when they were both adolescents. And he testifies at the trial and speaks quite movingly about their innocent romance and she's crying about it. And he finds friends of the Stenels to testify about how she was just this kind of wonderful, loving woman who was married to a weak man. And that's really the problem that she, she just had to do all this work because of her husband's weakness, but she was nothing but love. So that's really the kind of strategy is the sort of painting her as this loving, good woman. And it seems to work because she's found innocent and she's acquitted. And as she's acquitted, right, you know, the sort of everyone erupts in, in the courtroom with joy and they're so excited and, you know, they all just want to sort of be close to her and right they're all right the sort of reports all paint this picture of like everyone in the courtroom is in love with her so she can move on with her life and she doesn't stick around paris she leaves and she tries to keep a lower profile after the trial uh she moves to london she uh, wants to escape the press attention which is absolutely overwhelming and we lose track of her for a batch of years. She just lives under the radar. And in 1917, 
She is living in a quite large house just outside of London, and it's well furnished. And the fact that she seems to have some money at that point suggests to me that she was continuing to take lovers um, who would give her money um, because she doesn't have a lot of money from her family or from her husband's estate. Um, she does write her memoirs and presumably she was paid handsomely for that. But in 1917, she marries a British baron who is uh, many years her uh, younger than she, and who seems absolutely smitten and had actually fallen in love with her at the trial and had sort of never given up his dream of marrying her, even though right after the trial, she turns him down. And But I think a few years later after the trial, they sort of meet at, I think, a tennis match and start a romance and then finally get married in 1917. It's the midst of World War One, of course, and he's serving in the Navy. And um, you can actually watch a clip of them leaving the church on YouTube because this was the sort of fun story at the time, right? A bit of joy in a bleak period of time. And so I don't quite know much about her life because again, she flies under the radar. She manages to really escape the press attention. You know, we hope that this the second marriage was a kind of loving match, but quite tragically, 10 years after they're married in 1927, he dies of a heart attack. Um, she has no involvement in, in his death. Um, <laughs> and, and then she lives out the rest of her life in a seaside town as I think a kind of dowager of some means. Um, you know, goes to charity bazaars, has lunches with friends, you know, volunteers during World War II. Um, there's, I found a photo of her at a party from the 1930s, you know, where she's dressed in furs and has a tiara on and looks every bit the be belle of the ball in her late 60s at that point. And then she, she refuses to talk to journalists she really pushes them away, um, and she dies in the 1950s, taking her secrets with her. Uh, yeah. The theory that it was Tsar Nicholas II's uncle who committed the murders, you would think that if that was the case, I mean, that family fell out of power in a pretty horrific way. And in later years, if he really was a part of this, you'd have to wonder why she would feel the need to protect him, protect that family's reputation by refusing to name him. That's such a great point. And it's something I've thought about a lot, sort of why does she never really try and clear her name? But she does live under this cloud of suspicion. I think part of it is that she really just wants to put the whole thing behind her. And she, there's this moment during the investigation to the murders where she really courts celebrity. And then she retreats um, right after the trial and shuns it as much as possible. Um, and so the only thing I can think of is that she just doesn't want the attention. She just doesn't want people kind of thinking about her um, in relationship to the murders anymore. Um, and she just wants to go on living her life. 
But it is true, of course, that, you know, if it was the Grand Tsar, she might have had, sorry, the Grand Duke, the Tsar's um, uncle, she might have had uh, the ability to clear her name. Um, I, I just think she didn't want the press attention that that would have drawn. Hmm. Interesting. Well, well, this has been so great. So for people who want to connect with you, how can they do it? So um, I am on the internet as um, sarahehorowitz.com. So you can go there. And then I have a contact page, which has links to all my socials, um, to Twitter and Instagram, where I'm there um, for you know more information about the books and lots of pictures of my dog. Ah, cute. So we're going to pretend that this interview wasn't recorded weeks ago. Uh, go with me here. We're going to pretend uh, today is September 6th, and your book is officially out today. It is, yes. It, it, it can be purchased, of course, in bookstores and online. Yes, yes. All the, all the places, including wonderful independent bookstores. Well, thank you so much. This, this has been so interesting. Thank you. You too. I really enjoyed it. Again, I have been speaking to Sarah Horowitz. She is the author of The Red Widow, The Scandal That Shook Paris and The Woman Behind It All. This has been another episode of the most notorious podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. <laughs>